This podcast, The Two Mats, is sponsored as ever by the New European Newspaper. And we've got a very special subscription offer for you, a new one, where you can get a free bollocks to Brexit passport cover. That's right, you heard that right, folks. It's a burgundy, like vegan leather, beautifully designed passport cover. Pleather. To, to have pleather, that's what, that's what they call it, isn't it? Pleather. To hide your um, new British blue. The shame of the, the blue shame, The shame passport. of the blue passport. And you can get your free bollocks to Brexit passport cover free with a subscription to the New European from just £1 a week. So to take this fantastic offer, and trust me, if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love the New European, go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S, and there's a link in the show notes. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello, Snowflakes. Welcome back to the New European Podcast with me, Steve Anglesey, the editor of the New European. Like Matt Hancock, this podcast is dedicated to exploring new ways to communicate with people of all ages and from all backgrounds, especially if the people in question are TV producers waving large checks. Coming up, the journalist and author John Kampfner on a QAnon-inspired coup attempt in Germany at a year in which an unlikely hero taught Ukraine and the world about the value of courage and defiance. And later, Eleanor Longman Rood and Matt Withers will be helping me put more pompous politicians into our Hall of Shame. Another brilliant print edition of The New European is available now. It's issue 320, and it has our European of the Year, Volodymyr Zelensky, on the cover. Our website and newsletters are full of stories that take you right to the heart of European politics and culture. If you want more of all of that and moaning about Brexit, there's no better way to support us than by subscribing. And the good news is that podcast subscribers can get a year's digital subscription for just a pound a week, or you can get a year's subscription to our print and digital package for just two pounds a week. If you subscribe to print and digital for two pounds a week, you will get unlimited digital access, plus our award-winning newspaper will be delivered to your door every week for a year. To take advantage of this remarkable exclusive offer, you can subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash T-N-E podcast. That's theneweuropean.co.uk slash T-N-E podcast. So Ellie and Matt will join us for the Hall of Shame shortly. But first, it's a pleasure to welcome back to this podcast the journalist John Kampfner, 
He's the author not only of the best-selling book, Why the Germans Do It Better, but he's also the author of the New Europeans cover story this week in which we name Volodymyr Zelensky as our European of the Year. John, when, when Russia invaded, which is nearly 10 months ago now, the ex- I mean, the expectations for Ukraine were low. The expectations for for its president were, were probably even lower. Why, why did people feel sceptical about Zelensky? He came in on this huge tidal wave of support, 2019, um, beating uh, Poroshenko, who was the existing president at the time, who had done a sort of reasonable job, but within a Ukrainian context. And that context was basically trying to keep the show on the road, trying to keep the Russians at bay, but nobody has been able to do one of two things, either sort of embed a really solid democratic narrative and democratic institutions or to tackle corruption. So this bright new thing, this 41-year-old cheeky, chappy, diminutive comedian, um, Volodymyr Zelensky, uh, rocks up, having become a celebrity, a much more popular celebrity than, say, Matt Hancock, um, in terms of um, doing his really quite funny series, Servant of the People. And that whole series was basically about how this Joker chap was identified by some oligarchs. And then one thing led to another and suddenly he became president. So um, life imitating art and and all of that, uh, Zelensky crops up, is incredibly popular, then it becomes pretty obvious that he's not going to, he's not in a position to, he doesn't even know how to make the kinds of changes that Ukraine desperately needs. So on the eve of war, and in that whole period, he had become as unpopular as any other leader. Yes, it's, I mean, it is is quite remarkable, isn't it? And I mean, unpopular for the reasons that you said, but I mean, also, seemingly i was really unaware of this this long tradition of corruption in ukraine which he seemed powerless to to stop yeah i mean it's it is so embedded i mean you know ukraine was sort of a just a you know ukrainians will not like me saying this but it was a smaller version of russia the idea of a whole bunch of oligarchs and crooks stealing the um, raw materials and the wealth of the country in the early mid 90s, consolidating their power, buying up politicians. The Russian and the Ukrainian oligarchs both got on with each other and uh, were rivals with each other as they were rivals with themselves and they thought they could own politics. So it was a fairly standard refrain. And there weren't that many people who when they compared Ukraine's body politic and its whole modus operandi compared it any less unfavorably than they did Russia's. It's all very, I mean, it's such a daunting thing because obviously here's a guy who is, he's an actor, isn't he? No, he's got no experience in politics, uh, never mind any experience in the military. As you say in the piece, he's got, he didn't take any part in the the Orange Revolution or the... Or, or getting um, uh, the, the previous president out. Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. And uh, he was just, um, 
as I say, just a bit of a celebrity. Um, this was the era of anti-politics. So you have Donald Trump in one respect, you have Boris Johnson, the clown in another respect. You also have Emmanuel Macron with his whole new political movement. And in some ways, Zelensky, if you're gonna, if he's gonna, he obviously got on very well with Johnson, but the person probably he would have wanted to model himself on was Macron, the whole idea of starting an entire new political movement based in what he called the center, which I think it was. I mean, it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't uh, doing bad things. It was just incapable of changing things. And then suddenly, and also on the eve of war, he was not quite nowhere to be seen, but he was not heeding the warnings of the Americans. I mean, to be honest, very few people were. I mean, the Germans, when I was in Berlin, they all thought, oh, the American intelligence must be dodgy, look at Iraq. And uh, the Brits and the Americans were out in front on the intelligence front and on trying to say to Ukraine that these 120,000 Russian forces ranged on the border, they're not there for fun. Something is going to happen and it's going to happen soon. And Ukrainians I knew uh, at the time were saying it's really surreal here. The theatres were open, the restaurants were open, the bars were open. At the same time, people were sort of checking train timetables and trying to work out what happened. And Zelensky was caught unawares, which makes what happened in those first hours and days and weeks and into months all the more remarkable. Yes, I mean, he said it's, it, this is not the Titanic and, and uh, hinted that Putin was trying to scare people, as you say in your piece. Do you think that his inexperience, his perceived weakness, did that encourage Vladimir Putin? Oh, completely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Putin just thought, well, you know, there's a bunch of unserious people in Ukraine. They're all owned by the oligarchs. And we own the oligarchs. And the Ukrainian people are all a bit of a mess and it's all a bit of a mix. We're just going to walk in and you know, there'll be a bit of resistance here and there. Uh, there'll be a bit of sort of sullen withdrawal, but enough people will accept it or welcome it and you know we'll take the keys to Kiev within a matter of days uh, we'll implant you know we'll um, implant our own person there we'll arrest Zelensky or he can escape somewhere into Western Europe job done that was the absolute assumption and to be honest it was also the assumption of Western countries as well mm. so what happened to him then on on that day because we can talk all we like about proxy wars and you know foreign drones and enormous amounts of foreign aid and <laughs> Biden and Russian ineptitude, but the impact of Zelensky himself, which is why we've made him the European of the Year, is is just phenomenal, isn't it? It's incredible. Yeah, he just turns up and says uh, on the, the you know the, his whole mastery of um, media and communications was remarkable. Turns up immediately afterwards um, and you know they were very close to taking him down they were apparently very close to killing him there were there were plants in uh, his interior security and we don't know because the information hasn't come out and it's closely guarded just how close the Russians were to um, getting rid of him he survived that he emerged from his bunker onto the streets heavily guarded uh, to say, I'm here, those words. And, you know, from there, that was a sense of galvanizing and solidarity. And, you know, within three days, 
Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor, had done his Zeitenwender speech saying, in effect, the rules of the game have changed. We Germans are going to uh, completely do a 180 degree turn on, on Russia and in terms of military support, all the other countries, large and small in Europe, responding in that way. He, he just struck a nerve in, in some way with the way he portrayed the minnow country and the underdog taking on this malevolent giant. And through that, and you can only get so far with communications, it, you know, the, we don't know the extent to which the Americans and others, the Brits and others are, you know, are in Ukraine and, and heavily supporting in terms of military strategy. But he's got some very good people around him and the way Ukraine has managed militarily and in terms of social solidarity, this war, and they've managed to get the Europeans and the Americans to supply weaponry and keep on doing so in the face of some public skepticism in individual countries is remarkable. And obviously, you know, the dream situation for him in a year's time um, if he builds on this remarkable success, is is maybe maybe the the Russians have withdrawn altogether. Maybe the Ukraine is much closer to NATO and and to the the EU. But of course, it's not as easy as that, is it? No, things no. could turn, couldn't they? Yeah, um, it's going to be desperately difficult these next three months. Um, NATO, by the way, uh, Ukraine, by the way, is not going to get into NATO anytime soon. That's absolutely a red line for. Putin and mm. Zelensky realizes that now, um, but the EU's defense structures are strong and getting stronger. So by not being formally in NATO, I don't think um, Ukraine will suffer hugely in any case. I think, you know, most people recognize it in the present situation that is a step too far, but it will be remarkable. It you know, now has candidate status and when when the when Ukraine becomes a member of the EU, everything will change. Everything will change for the EU itself. But it's going to be incredible. It's very hard to envisage any of this at the moment with a decent chunk of the country occupied by Russia and the borders incredibly porous. Um, how much progress either country will make in the next three months? is important but i don't think it is the absolute salient point i think if ukraine can get through this till march april and if western public opinion in spite of energy prices and general public discontent with their economic plight across western europe as uh, if we can all get through that by march april i think the perspectives for ukraine are going to improve again because they have ebbed and flowed. It felt really good when uh, they retook Kherson and they took uh, parts of north uh, of, of the eastern um, uh, section just north of Donetsk and, and Luhansk. And there seemed to be a lot of progress in September, October. Then the mood darkened again. And it's just a matter now of hungering down and making sure terrible things don't happen. And of course, there is, you know, there is going to be a growing, uh, a growing push 
you know, it's sotto voce at the moment, isn't it? There are people, there are American generals coming out and, and uh, you know, th- floating these ideas. But the, a push for some kind of settlement is going to happen. And Zelensky has set himself very much against the idea of any settlement that, well, he's, he's basically said he, he wants everything back to 2014, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, in a way, you could say he's boxed himself into a corner. But on the other hand, he didn't really have any choice. Hmm. The moment Zelensky says, yeah, sure, fair cop, let's start negotiations about territory, then the air completely goes out of the balloon. You know, what are people fighting for if they know that territory is being carved up? There is a pure, there is a moral purity about saying we are going back to the Ukraine pre-2014 before you annexed Crimea and before you fermented warfare in the east of the country. He's got to say that, um, but at the same time, there's noises in Washington, Macron's being fairly open about it, Schultz is being fairly open about it, about, look guys, eventually you are gonna have to get to the negotiating table, and yes, you are going to have to talk about territory, but that will be incredibly difficult for Zelensky, because people will want to know what on earth did we, did so many people lose their lives and their livelihoods for? I mean, he is loved within Ukraine, uh, it, it would <laughs> seem, it, it would seem. But of course, as you mentioned in, in, in this piece, you know, Winston Churchill was loved in Great Britain. When he next came to the, the, the ballot box after peace arrived in 1945, he was unceremoniously dumped. Um, is there is there is there any sort of internal opposition to to Zelensky? Does he need to? Is there anything he needs to worry about on that front? Yes and no is the answer. There is absolutely internal opposition to Zelensky, or at least there was a uh, number of key figures, not least Poroshenko, who he booted out and then tried to have arrested. Um, Vitaly Klitschko, the mayor of Kiev, famous former world boxing champion and also a somebody who stood for president once and others besides ukraine is full of big beasts of political beasts some of whom have already served in different positions and they look upon this chancellor and this actor um prior to february 24th and thought you know get serious guys this isn't serious but that has all changed absolutely he will go down as a great hero of the country He is loved, adored, respected, but at the same time, people are uh, zipping up. I know loads of Ukrainians who, as soon as you start talking about uh, all the things that are wrong with their country or things that Zelensky has done wrong or they disagree with him about, they'll start speaking and they'll say, oh, Christ, we better not say this because we're Mm. at war. You know, time to zip up. And so people are zipping up, but that won't stay forever. But unless he sells the country down the river, which he won't, uh, whatever happens to him, he'll have an, an enormous and, and very positive historical legacy everywhere, obviously, except for Russophiles. Uh, so Volodymyr Zelensky as European of the Year, that was your piece for the current issue of the New European. The issue that is going to be available on December the, the 15th, you are looking at this amazing raid on 130 sites in Germany, 25 people arrested, a, a, a plot the police say to, I mean, it's don't, they're not doing things by halves, it's a plot to overthrow the German state. Hmm. Before Wednesday morning, I'd never heard of the Reich citizens movement. 
Um, is, is the Reich Citizens Movement widely known? What is it? Well, I like to think of myself, Steve, as somebody who knows his way around Germany. Yes. Um, written about Germany and blah, blah, blah. I had never heard of them. Uh, <laughs> now, that, now that might say something about me um, and the gaps in my knowledge, but I hadn't heard of them. There's lots of right-wing movements, um, both the AFD and fringe movements around the AFD and um, this group called the Querdenkende, the sort of um, the people who think differently, uh, which has basically morphed from originally Euroscepticism into uh, hostility towards migrants, uh, usually with a big dose of Russophilia, and then became all COVID deniers. Mm -hmm. And those sort of links are fairly standard in a lot of countries, you know, it must be said, and the sort of, you know, where, you know, and the concentric circles that mix with sort of Trumpism and Steve Bannon and Yes, all these, um, you know, you want to call them, you know, nut jobs and, and head cases, but they are very, very dangerous. Yes. And, um, so, no, I hadn't heard of this group. The fact that they were there has been a the uh, Federal Office for the Protection of the Constitution in Germany has said some time ago that right wing terrorism is a greater threat to the country than militant Islam. And, and has been for some time, their threat levels um, swapped over at some time ago, probably because the intelligence services have got a much better handle on um, Islamic militants. The problem with some of these far right people is, as in other countries, they have penetrated places, not least uh, the police and the military, and elsewhere, so it makes it quite hard to unearth them. But this, obviously the facts are still coming out about this series of raids, but it seems to have been a pretty remarkable operation uh, given how extensive these raids are that uh, they held it so tight and they've, um, they've gone after so many people. And I mean, you touched on it there, but obviously, you know, the idea of extreme factions, extremist factions is deep, Residence, resonance in, when you think of Germany and post-war, you know, when I, when, when we, I was first heard this story this morning, you know, you think of things like Baden-Meinhof and June 2 movement and, you know, the National, Nationalist, uh, National Socialist Underground even, which was about 10 years ago, I think. Yeah. This feels more like QAnon and that kind of thing, doesn't it? The anti-corona thing, the, the Eurosceptics. Yeah, absolutely. But as I say, that in and of itself isn't new. There has been, you know, there, there was some stuff a year or two ago about the extent to which the far right had penetrated the police and um, parts of the military as well. And obviously with Germany and Germany's past, there is a particular salience mm. about anything to do with, with far right stuff. Now, this overthrow of the state stuff is nonsense. It's just rhetorical nonsense. But... You know, they're obviously, and again, we don't know the facts yet, but are they, were they taking their cues from January the 6th and the US Congress yes. and um, trying to do that? Now, they would not, in a month of Sundays, have been able to overthrow the state. Would they have been able to cause death and destruction, an enormous amount of damage and social upheaval? Well, if they had succeeded, they could well have done. And that is what is so scary. In all countries now, we see how you know starting from the united states after all we see how 
having taken our democracies and our institutions so much for granted, we see how vulnerable they really are. It's very true. I mean, all of this understandably overshadows the, the one-year anniversary of Olaf Scholz taking office. Um, yeah, which may well have been around the timings. Who knows whether they were planning yes. these spectaculars to, to coincide with that. And yeah, I mean, Scholz and his traffic light coalition with the Greens and with the uh, liberal free Democrats, who, whose colour is, is yellow, hence, hence traffic light, with the Social Democrats, the ruling Social Democrats, is the personification of what so many on the right would regard as anathema to uh, Germany and to Europe and, and to you know, free market economics as sort of quite a statist government that is um, in a rather plodding way, although everything has been subsumed by Ukraine, is, you know, is trying to modernize, digitize um, Germany, make it more sustainable, improve renewables, while at the same time dealing with the energy crisis. You know, this isn't the Germany of a particular Reich that obviously a fringe group of people would like to see revived. Yes. Um, and I mean, you, you, you've written about him before that he, Schultz, I mean, he's not inspiring, is he? He's a, he's a dull guy. He's, he's a process guy. And he gives the impression of a leader who waits to see which way the wind is blowing before he acts. Is that is that what I mean? Is that what Germany wants now? Is that is that what, in a sense, that's what we're all looking for at the moment? I think. Well, I mean, he is Mister Anti Charisma. I mean, yeah. he's, he is astonishing. I mean, you know, um, Merkel when she started was also pretty self-effacing and didn't say much. And whatever the historical reckoning about her and Russia is now, she became a very big figure in Europe. So her sort of lack of charisma almost gave her a charisma. Um, Schultz isn't like that at all. He is just genuinely un un unexciting and uncharismatic. But it's curious. I mean, he does seem to do the business. When he went to China, to Beijing a couple of weeks ago, the French, the Brits, the Americans were all pretty wary. What are the Germans going there with, you know, some business leaders in tow to talk to Xi Jinping just after his Congress when he'd consolidated power? This looks like waving the white flag. And Schultz did incredibly well. And everybody had to agree that he did well. So is he going to grow as a politician or is he just dull, 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 but gets the job done? Is that what people want now? Well, certainly if you're looking from a British perspective, at the end of 2022, three prime ministers, um, just the, the clownery, the, the extent of the turbulence and the mayhem, and a point that I don't think any Brit uh, really gets enough, just the extent of the disdain in which Britain is held, that you would basically trade in anything and anyone for somebody serious. Mm. And, you know, forget being an exciting person, forget galvanizing the population, just somebody who knows how to do the business. And that is Schultz personified. Yes, absolutely. Uh, we haven't even mentioned the World Cup. Um, I don't think I want to intrude on the, the, the private grief there, but to, too much. <laughs> I yeah, mean, well, being a German as well as a Brit now, um, you know. Yes, you I are, can, of course. I can hedge my bets on that. Uh, Allez la France on, on Saturday, <laughs> or, or maybe not. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, oh, well, where do we begin and where do we end? We could talk football forever. But, you know, then there's a fascinating question about the whole reputation of Qatar. Everybody's slagging it off. Um, for all 
manner of legitimate reasons and it you know and also the timing of it all and it was a very very slow burn this um world cup but it's got everybody completely glued i mean i was in ireland over, uh, over the weekend where obviously the irish are not there and that's the only thing anybody was talking about yes it's hard not to it's hard not to buy into it especially uh i mean especially when the england team are, are so likable and then you have stories like morocco um which is uh, which is just incredible um let's leave it there then john thank you so much to john kampfner to read him uh, on why volodymyr zelensky is our european of the year pick up issue 319 uh in fact 320 of the new european uh and to subscribe to the new european for a uh, discount rate you can go to www.theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. So Ellie, Matt, it's the podcast in our new office. Uh, and should we start with the traditional uh, entry to the Hall of Shame then? Uh, the world's worst column in the world's worst newspaper, which is uh, Anne Whittacombe's column in the Daily Express. And uh, this is what Anne Whittacombe is writing this week. And um, see if you can spot the flaw with this. Uh, a surge of support for the Reform Party is once again causing people to ask if small parties could determine the next election. Yes, they could, but not by winning parliamentary seats. People will vote for small parties in by-elections and local elections, but not in general elections, when they fear to divert the vote, their votes from the big parties in case they let the wrong big party in. Yet that does not mean small parties are powerless. In 2019, the Brexit party comprehensively won the European election, firing a huge warning shot across the bows of the Tories, who shortly afterwards ditched dithering Theresa May and elected Boris Johnson on a pledge of getting Brexit done. So all they need to do, the Reform Party, is to win the next European elections. I, I mean, she's got it sorted. It's flawless, isn't it? It's an, as plans go, it's exceptional. Uh, it's remarkable. So who are you putting in the Hall of Shame this week? So first up for me in the Hall of Shame is one particular reporter from News Talk ZB, the New Zealand radio station. Uh, at a joint press conference at Auckland's Government House, he asked New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern if she was only meeting with Finnish Prime Minister Sanna Marin uh, because they were of a similar age, because there's nothing else to, you know, really discuss or anything like that. Uh, in response, Ardern seemed visibly irked by this, and I think that's completely and utterly fair enough, and responded, my first question is whether anyone actually asked uh, Barack Obama or John Key, that's the former New Zealand Prime Minister, if they'd met, because they were also of a similar age. Um, on the subject, New Zealand's ambassador to Finland, Andrew Jenks, said that he was surprised that journalists would really think to ask such questions. Really, not massively surprised myself. Um, I guess it is weirdly and bizarrely comforting to know that, you know, in a historic visit with the first working visit to New Zealand and Australia by a Finnish Prime Minister, that the same pointless casual sexism still remains. Um, and joining him from me is uh, Andrew Bowie. Yesterday, the exports minister gave a massive car crash of an interview on BBC Politics Live. Uh, the Scottish Tory MP was challenged on research from Aston University, which found a variety of UK, uh, which found that a variety of UK products exported to the EU was down by forty-two percent since wow. Brexit. 
Those who conducted the research said that this would have obviously serious implications for the UK future of exporting and productivity. But this was all massive news to Bowie, and he wasn't really going along with it at all, even when sort of put the fact the facts were put to him plain today. Uh, he instead claimed that as each day goes on, it's actually getting much easier for businesses to export to Europe, don't you know? Uh, and added that the Department for International Trade was committed to making it simpler still. Uh, when asked, you know, fair enough, how would this be achieved? He explained that they would drive up exports, not just to the EU, but around the world, pointing as a shining example to the trade deal with Australia. So the same one that George Eustace has recently slammed, excellent. Um, so back to the drawing board, asked again how the government would do this. He simply said various ways. Um, <laughs> when asked one more time, his, he said his plan was to simplify the ways in which British companies can get their goods to Europe. So essentially the opposite of what Brexit has actually done. And another example of heads being hidden in the sand, but I suppose that's a welcome change from his head being stuck up somewhere else. Blimey. It's not one of Bowie's greatest hits, <laughs> is it, to be fair? Okay. Uh, Matt Withers, who's who's going in the hall of shame from you this week? Well, a couple, but I'm going to start with a man who, and I'm just putting this out there, I'm beginning to think is the biggest twit in the cabinet. Wow. Um, and I know there's a lot of conversation, but I do think that Nadim Zahawi is rapidly becoming the most tragic comic figure. But before coming on to what I'm putting in for this week, let's revisit the year he's had. Let's go back to um, July at the point that Boris Johnson being forced out of office. On uh, Tuesday, July the 5th, when everybody was quitting, he was appointed Boris Johnson's Chancellor. The next day, Wednesday, July the 6th, he publicly joined a ministerial delegation telling Johnson to go. Privately, we now know from Sebastian Payne's new book, he was persuaded by Johnson that the situation was remedial um, and agreed a joint economic press conference for the next day. The next day, Thursday, July the 7th, he changed his mind again and in a letter on Treasury notepaper at 8.43 a.m. said he was heartbroken, but Johnson must do the right thing and go now. Then we'll move on to uh, October, when Johnson was trying to become Conservative leader again, um, getting that magic figure of 100 MPs to back him. On the evening of Sunday, the 23rd of October, in an article since deleted from the Telegraph website, but still available via the Wayback Machine, uh, he wrote, get ready for Boris 2.0, the man who will make the Tories and Britain great again. This summer, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, I saw Boris 2.0 emerging, he wrote. But let's just part the fact that, you know, he doesn't really get to talk about being Chancellor of the Exchequer. He didn't have a budget, and I think he only appeared once at the dispatch box. It was just a little summer job, like the rest of us used to go to, like, summer camps in the States. Uh, that was published at nine o'clock that evening. I think around two minutes later, Boris Johnson announced that he would not be standing as leader, and uh, Nadim Zahawi rapidly threw himself behind Rishi Sunak's campaign. Uh, this week, he's been in the news because he told broadcasters that nurses should call off their strikes and abandon their pay demands because it risks playing into the hands of Vladimir Putin. <laughs> he said, this is the time to come together and to send a very clear message to Mr. Putin that we're not going to be divided in this way. The, uh, the Russian president, of course, pays very close attention to both of the nursing unions. <laughs> That's Nadim Zahawi going into the Hall of Shame. Uh, he's going to be joined by one of his cabinet colleagues, Dominic Raab, who this week uh, added one of the great political quotes to, uh, to, to, to the history of great political quotation. I'm thinking Abraham Lincoln, the ballot is stronger than the bullet, 
Edmund Burke, when bad men combine, the good must associate, else they will fall one by one, an unpitied sacrifice in a contemptible struggle, and Charles de Gaulle, in order to become the master, the politician poses as the servant. Dominic Raab said this week, I have never thrown anything in anger at anyone, whether it's a tomato or anything else, and it's just simply not true. Uh, and for that addition to the great political lexicon, Dominic Raab is in the Hall of Shame. Well, I mean, he's already in the political lexicon, isn't he? For uh, I couldn't, that couldn't have happened because the, the sea was closed uh, that, that day. I couldn't have gone paddleboarding, wasn't it, during the mm -hmm. pandemic because the sea was closed. Uh, I want to put Andrew Bridgen in the Hall of Fame. Um, Andrew Bridgen used to bang on about how wonderful Brexit was. He can't really do that anymore. Uh, so he has gone full anti-vax weirdo. And this is a question of a question that he asked at PMQs on Wednesday. Uh, he said, given that the mRNA vaccines are not recommended for pregnant women or those who are breastfeeding, would my right honourable friend overturn the big pharma funded MHRA recent recommendation that these experimental vaccines are administered to children as young as six months old. Um, and he's talking about COVID vaccines there. And the first thing to say about this is that Andrew Bridgen is, is wrong. Uh, according to full fact, the COVID vaccines he's talking about there are recommended uh, for pregnant women, uh, in, in fact, both during and after pregnancy. And secondly, it's great hearing Andrew Bridgen talk disdainfully about Big Pharma because he's a very large gentleman who spent years running a potato farm. He literally is a big farmer. Um, now, Ellie and Matt, I think you will have some thoughts on this because also I want to put Matt Hancock into the Hall of Shame. And as I mentioned in the intro to this podcast, he is leaving Parliament at the next election. To be honest with you, he would have been leaving Parliament uh, at the next election anyway, but at least this is his, his choice rather than the choice of the voters of West Suffolk. And he said that he is stepping down because he wants to explore new ways to communicate with people of all ages and from all backgrounds. Some people, cruel people, have noted that earlier in the week, Matt Hancock said he was definitely not going to uh, step down. Um, and they have said that his sudden change of mind might have got something to do with the fact that his local Tory association passed a vote with no confidence in him. Um, Ellie, are you going to miss Matt Hancock's contribution to political life? I will greatly, greatly miss Matt Hancock's um, somewhat contributions to political life. No, I I won't miss him at all. I don't know if you guys saw yesterday the Times on social media put up a a plethora of different um, images of Hancock over the years, um, including some of the real gems that we got treated to while he was on I'm a Celeb, and asked, you know, never want to shy away from the camera, which is your former uh, favourite image of the former health secretary? And I can't say I actually, you know, had a favourite image, but that one of him with a frog on his head is really quite good that we had in the paper last week. But no, I won't miss him. It was, he was always going to go. Like you say, he's beat the you know, beat everyone to the punches, done it on his somewhat own terms. Um, and yeah, he's off to pastures green, um, whether he finds that they're actually pastures brown and not very good at all, we will see. And it's like you said also, when he said that he was definitely, you know, staying in politics, you knew the minute that was said, you knew that that was just not true at all. And it was only a matter of time before he announced that he was going to be Matt Hancock no more in, in politics. So where do you think he's going to end up? Well, he said that he's not going to do any more reality TV, which is a lovely Christmas present for everyone, I think. 
But whether he then um, back turns on that again, who knows? We're going to see what, what's um, dancing on ice and strictly. Maybe we'll see him there. Who knows? What about the one where you have to dress up as a large bird or something like that, or, oh, or, or, an, ice, or an ice cream cone? Just as long as it's not naked attraction, I don't mind. Well, <laughs> I don't think you can rule it out with his, his, his track record, certainly. Um, Matt, have you been following his... Uh, the serialization of his incredible pandemic diaries. Um, I've tried to uh, avoid. It. I've not actually read the extracts in the mail, but I've seen where they've been um, where they've been printed elsewhere. I don't really get why he's done it or why the mail is serializing it. I don't get that he seems to think this will get him the forgiveness that he he seeks from the families of the I think two hundred eleven thousand so mm. far. Uh, COVID death, a lot of whom really do feel a great deal of, of ill will towards the, the man who appears to sign off on sending people back into, into care homes without being sufficiently tested. And I don't think um, having, a, having a, a wacky old time in the jungle is going to change those people's minds. And I, I think the male have misjudged it as well, because I, I don't think that their readers feel this affection for Matt Hancock, given that so many of their readers are are quite are quite elderly too. I, I don't think they hold them in, in the affection that I, I think they do. I don't know, it'd be interesting to see what he does. I think in his mind, he thinks he's going to be Ed Balls. Yes. And I think there's a difference. Ed Balls, um, apart from people who actually dealt with him within, within Downing Street, people didn't feel a great deal of ill will towards him as much as he had any view of him. And he also comes across as quite a warm personality. Yes. Whereas Hancock, for all he in the jungle um, was quite impressive at the way he, he, he fiercely turned his hand to any of the tasks. He didn't come across as a very warm person. Oh, he came across as quite quite a hard face. Um, you know, he was there to do a job. Um, so if he thinks he's going to end up, you know, doing doing cooking shows or presenting children's TV or uh, whatever in the back of his mind, how how this plays out, um, I think he probably needs to look into the post-political creative world. So take one of his fellow um, former jungle um, camps uh, of a few years ago, Lembe Opet, who I read this week, um, now is behind something called, well, I think it's Operation Earthquake, which is a campaign to stop the government outlawing non-electric new cars after 2030, which seems an incredibly esoteric turn of career. Uh, I, I suspect Hancock's career may be a little bit more open and a little bit less balls. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mention of Blembit Opic, obviously. I have discussed this on this podcast before, but I think a couple of years ago uh, now, and I, I interviewed Blembit Opic once in my one of, when I was writing about sport, when I was writing about football, uh, and I went to the House of Commons to meet Lembit Opic, and it, it was a feature, it was a regular feature in the magazine 442 about celebrity fans of a certain who were obsessed with their club. Uh, I also spoke to Alistair Campbell about Burnley, um, uh, who gave me two, two or three hours of very entertaining stuff and knew uh, Burnley deeply. And then when I went to meet Lembit Opic a couple of weeks later, he arrived uh, in the House of Commons clutching Wikipedia entry for Swindon Town FC, which he had printed out. Uh, and I said, when was the last time you, you, you saw Swindon Town? And he said, it was about three years ago. And I said, what game was it? And he said, well, I didn't actually attend the game, but we I was in a plane and we flew over the stadium. Um, and it went, yeah, it went about as well as, as you can uh, imagine after that. 
Um, have you, Ellie, have you seen the, the sort of Mills and Boone element of Matt Hancock's diaries? Um, I was actually going to bring this up because, so it's called the Pandemic Diaries. So far, it seems to be not an actual true to form diary because it's written retrospectively. Yes. So that's one part out. Okay, fine. The pandemic, it's not actually hugely about, or it, I haven't read the whole lot, but the segments I've read and what people have been saying, it's not actually about the pandemic. It's more the Matt Hancock show, but in literary form. Excellent. Something we all wanted. Um, but it's supposed to be, you know, an inside scoop on what happened bit by bit and how what happened with PPE and care homes. And like you say, the inside story, but you say Mills and Boone, but it, it's become like a fairy tale romanticized diary of how he actually triumphed over the the dragon which was covid and won the hand of the fair maiden in in the meantime and yeah. when he has the very awkward thing where he keeps going on about how he fell in love and his decisions were wrong because he fell in love and judgment was you know off because he fell in love um i think his wife gets three mentions out of the whole book which i'm sure is you know it's gone down really well um but it's just I don't think bit... it's the worst thing that he's done through his wife, to be fair. Oh, I'm just saying, you know, casting some slack. <laughs> <laughs> no, maybe not right up there. But for it to be just rather than the actual what, you know, was promised and, you know, it's instead what we expected. And it's just a huge ego trip and ego exercise. And it's actually kind of mildly insulting to call it the pandemic diaries and then say, this is how, you know, I fell in love, triumphed over COVID. Um and there's bits of it where he's talking about the actual bits that are about the pandemic and COVID, where he's saying he's slumped down on the sofa and literally sort of woe is me. I feel like I'm doing this all on my own. And it's just, oh, yeah, it is just become a bit, it's like a drama. It's not a diary. It is a drama, yes. And and of course, he's does, he slumps on the sofa in his office, doesn't he? And yeah. says, uh, it feels like I'm running the government all on my own, and to which he, he reports that he's... he's uh, his aide says, yes, it, you are, in fact. It's worth mentioning as well that his co-writer is, uh, when you talk about whether it's true or not, his mm -hmm. co-writer is uh, Isabel Bootshop. Yeah. The journalist and, and listener, I'm putting air quotes around the, the word journalist, who invented a story about David Cameron and a, and a pig's head to sell a previous uh, tawdry biography. So uh, make of that what you will. Um Matt Hancock says in this book that when he went to the Brit Awards, Ronnie Wood slipped something into his hand uh, and he was worried that it might be cocaine. Did, did you see what it turned out to be? It was, in fact, a baby bell. It was a mini baby bell because he was. He said he was quite hungry. He had to miss the dinner because he was working. Uh, and as you say, um, th there is a Mills and Boone element to it all. This is a, this is a quote from the diaries. It's amazing. What price love? I've what price love? I've always known from the novels, from the novels. <laughs> I've always known from the novels, you know, the novels, uh, that people will risk everything. They are ready to blow up their past, their present, and their future. They will jeopardize everything they work for and everything that is solid and certain, uh, including uh, presumably the, the thrice mentioned Mrs. Mm. Hancock. And you were also right. Uh, to say that despite being called the pandemic diaries, they're not actually diaries. No. And this is one of my favourite bits of it. In the foreword, Matt Hancock writes, I didn't have time to keep a detailed diary in the midst of the maelstrom, nor would it have been right to do so. So not a diary. But Two pages later, Wednesday, the 1st of January, I woke up in Suffolk after a quiet new year. <laughs> 
What a phony he really it, is. It reminds me, I had a misfortune a few years ago when I was away and hadn't run out of things to read. Somebody um, offered me one of Piers Morgan's diaries. Which yes. Clearly written several years after the event because it, one of them was like, I was, I'm sat in my hotel room in Florida and, and put on the TV. There's a speech by a senator I've never heard of before. A young man called Barack Obama. I looked at him and I thought, make a note of his name. Am I looking at a future president? <laughs> it's amazing what hindsight can tell you, honestly. Tremendous. Tremendous. Uh, but finally in the Hall of Shame this week, and this is somebody who I'm almost certain we have never had in it before, because it's Keir Starmer. Uh, and asked on the Today programme if membership of the single market would boost economic growth in Great Britain, Keir Starmer said this, no, at this stage, I don't think it would, and there's no case for going back to the EU or going back into the single market. And do you know, I was reflecting at this only the other day, uh, when we started the New European, the only people who really seemed to know what a disaster Brexit was were people who bought the New European and Keir Starmer. And now everyone in Britain knows what a disaster Brexit is, apart from Keir Starmer. It is a funny old world. Well, that was the New European podcast with Steve Anglesey, Ellie Longman-Rood and Matt Withers. Thank you for joining us. Thanks to our guest, John Kampner, and thanks to our producer, John Dakin. Here is a reminder of our special offer for new subscribers. If you go to the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast, you can join us for the great price of just £1 a week for digital or £2 a week for print and digital. That's the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode of this podcast, please subscribe, give us nice ratings, lovely reviews, wherever your podcast provider allows. You can join our Facebook readers group, and while it still exists, you can follow us on Twitter at The New European. Ellie, what is your Twitter? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at E Longman underscore rude. Matt Withers. At Matt Withers. And me on Twitter is at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. And so until the next time we meet, goodbye from Ellie. Goodbye, guys. Goodbye from Matt. Farewell. And from me, it's so long, snowflakes. <laughs>